Welcome to the Working Capital Real Estate Podcast. My name is Jesse Bergali, and on this show, we discuss all things real estate with investors and experts in a variety of industries that impact real estate. Whether you're looking at your first investment or raising your first fund, join me and let's build that portfolio one square foot at a time. All right, ladies and gentlemen, you're listening to Working Capital. My name is Jesse Vergali, and my guest today is Vice President of Economics, Jackie Green of ITR Economics. How are you doing, Jackie? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Pleasure to have you here. Uh, this is your first time on the podcast. So what we typically like to do with, uh, you know, with new guests on the show is talk a little bit about uh, your background um, as it relates to real estate and economics and kind of uh, how you made it through, uh, through the journey to where you're at today. Well, let's see. I have been with ITR Economics since 2005. So that means I was here prior to the housing boom and the housing bust. Well, actually, the early part of the housing boom and the bust. Uh, So I've seen the whole run up. I've seen all sorts of crazy situations. It's been really fascinating from an econ standpoint. But I also am human and recognize that these are real people, real lives. Everyone's actually skin in the game. This is not a real numbers only game. But I try and look at it from a numbers perspective so that you can make more informed decisions and help you put you and your family and your circle of who matters to you in a better position. So that's the take I always have on is no emotional impact, but just helping you have the information so you can make a better decision. Right on. So was um, was economics what um, I mean, that was, I assume, your path in uh, in school uh, and it's uh, obviously a passion today. How did uh, what was that like? Um, just kind of how did that roll out? I find that people in this field sometimes come from different uh, different places. Uh, happy to hear that. Um, well, actually, I've officially been working for ITR since 2005, but realistically, I've been quasi involved with the company since I was probably about 10 years old. So it's been one of those things that I've always had an interest in. I've always been trying to figure out what's going on. And really, I love this stuff because it helps me see what's coming next. It helps me know the future so I can plan better, be in a better position for me, my family, and help the people around me. So once you kind of see that you get to see the future first, you can't imagine doing anything else. Yeah, that makes sense. Okay, so let's dive into a little bit about kind of the current environment. It's topical right now. Uh, real estate, uh, all different asset classes. Um, you know, we've talked about how they have been been impacted by just um, over the last few years. The general state of the economy today. Inflation has become you know a hot topic in a number of, for a number of different reasons. Uh, what's your assessment right now as to you know the cur- current inflationary environment? What's being told to us? Uh, does that kind of line up with the research that you've you've been uh, you know you've seen, and basically how that environment impacts real estate? There are lots of different ways people look at inflation, but for the moment, for the part we're going to talk about, we're going to look at consumer price indexes. Are when I say inflation, that's what I'm referring to. It has been on the rise. There's no doubt about it. Everyone's felt it, and it's been a headline item. It is coming down though so we're hitting a period of disinflation and i want to be very clear that's not deflation deflation is when prices actually decline disinflation is when they grow at a less extreme rate so the rate of rise is slowing so overall consumer price index is in a disinflation period slowing rise there have been pockets of deflation such as lumber that's been a nice deflationary pocket and some of those other commodities have really helped some of the new home sectors get some more construction going at a better cost price advantage there. But overall, inflation lags the overall housing market. Housing tends to lead it through the cycle. 
In terms of the average everyday person, though, what this means for them, seeing that inflation rate up and it's staying up, we do expect to see inflation easing throughout 2023 and 2024, but still inflation. It's not a deflationary environment as a whole. And what that means for consumers is it's going to eat into how much they can put towards that new home for them, how much they can afford than the appliances in the new home. And all that goes into having a new home for you. So it is something to be mindful of and be aware of, but it doesn't mean it's going to be enough to stop things. It just might change what consumers are purchasing. They might start going for slightly smaller homes because of that price point issue. So do you find that there's there's still a bit of a trade-off in terms of inflation as the what we've seen is uh, in some asset classes, value of these assets have, have come down, but we've seen strong rental growth in certain markets. Uh, th- I'm assuming that plays into kind of the inflationary piece? The rental piece is a lot of people needing somewhere to go and feeling like they can't get into the market. Right now, inventory for new homes is so low. And not just new homes, but new to you homes, sorry, I think, um, is so low that they're looking for somewhere to live. And that's their option in a lot of cases. Or they can't afford to get into the brand new to them home. So they're having to go that route. So I would say there's some of that trade off in there, but simply because there's a huge demand out there and we just can't supply the demand enough. If given the opportunity, the majority of people would be moving into a home if they could. How do you think this... Um... Basically, the inflation that we've seen right now, um, obviously, it ties into the interest rate policy and what the Fed targets uh, for uh, inflation. Um, How do you see that as in terms of, you know, a scorecard for how they have done over the last year or two? Um, You know, you're queen for a day. Would you have done this differently from a policy standpoint uh, with the interest rate hikes that we've seen over the last year, year and a half? Uh, How do you view that? I feel like you're setting me up to get audited by the IRS for the next four years. I got to throw that out there. Um, if I was queen for a day, no, I would not have gone quite this extreme with the interest rate hikes. But I'm also, ITR, we're nonpartisan. We make just observations in that regard. And we tend to be more Austrian than Keynesian based, which is more of a free market, let the economics do their thing. So it just, it naturally goes against some of my own expectations there. Our analysis is typically that the Fed over tightens when these sorts of things happen. So they, our expectation and what we're noticing is that they have over gone it with the interest rates and that we've seen this inverse yield curve happen. It's still an inverted yield curve out there, but, and that's primarily the 10 year and the three month bond that I'm talking about when I'm talking about an inverse yield curve. And that can be a very troubling sign for the economy. And we're seeing that sign actually mean that we will be pushing the economy into recession. And many interest rate sensitive markets have already tipped into that and we'll be pulling other segments in with it. So queen for a day, Jackie over here, I would not have gone quite that high, but I also completely understand they were looking at inflation getting up seven, eight, nine percent That's a scary number. They were seeing an overheated employment market and their mandates are to bring inflation down and to equalize the labor market. So they were reacting accordingly, but I think they went a little too far. And how do you see that interest rate environment or how, you, how have you seen it impact real estate? And you can, I mean, choose the asset class. I know it's, there's, um, you know, you can break this stuff down in, in quite a bit of detail. Uh, real estate is not, you know, there isn't the real estate market and there isn't one type of asset class. But how do you, how do you see interest rates impacting uh, real estate and where we're going from here uh, in terms of the, let's call it the short term? 
how I've seen it, and I'm going to use single family as the key part of this, is interest rates have really made that affordability issue that much worse for the average consumer because we saw housing prices already going up so high during the pandemic. That was already They were already in an upward trajectory, but we saw them just take that boom during the pandemic. Then the higher interest rates really put that affordability issue into play. So most people were finding it struggle to buy some of those houses. So we saw a deep recession in housing starts that impacted also the other parts of being seen in the housing market. Now, new home sales prices are down, but new home sales are actually on the rise. Permits are on the rise. So that segment of the economy is going through that recovery. It's the tentative early steps, even with interest rates, the seven-year fixed rate, sorry, (laughs) the seven... Nope, I'm going to butcher my words again. 30-year fixed rate is uh, above 7%. That's what I was trying to get out. Even with that there, we're starting to see the recovery in the housing market because it's normalizing for people and they're not expecting it to drop back down to where it was a decade ago. Um, But it does take time and it's not going to be an immediate fix and we're not going to see housing go back to quite that level of boom. But it's not a 2008-2009 crash either because there is still such high demand out there and such low inventory kind of kept that balance in play yeah it seems to me the if you know depending on the market the lack of buyers right now that potentially are um you know not able to to afford higher interest rates or staying home or not buying that first house i feel that that in conjunction with limited supply of single family homes is only creating more upward pressure on uh on the actual single family homes uh, and making that market even harder to enter. I feel like that's that's a challenge in a lot of markets. Depends on how you look at it. You're looking at one side of the coin. The other is that it creates more demand for smaller homes. For the last 10 years or so, it seemed like we were skipping the starter home for a lot of people and going straight to that big home, right? Mm. So now with the prices where they are, you're likely see more people having to go for the starter home approach to things and then move up to the other home as they've built in that equity. So that's going to be the balance of how to bring that cost down is just not buying quite as much house right away. I remember years ago, this, it was typical for your first house to be more in the 1200 square foot range than the 3200 square foot range, which seemed to be more of the trend depending on where you're living. Uh, so I think that's going to be part of the other side of that coin is bringing down the cost and making it more affordable. So could potentially also mean a shift in what sort of homes are being sold. And from the actual financial, um, let's call it the debt markets, uh, the exposure that some of these uh, debt uh, companies have, regional banks, uh, larger banks to the basically delinquency. Are, we, are you seeing in your research or from what you uh, see, are you seeing that as a, as a growing concern, uh, not a big issue? Uh, what does that look like for you? And, and does that, is that dependent on the type of real estate? Because I know coming from the commercial real estate world, there's a lot of headlines about this. And then when you look at really the exposure for, from bank balance sheets when it comes to certain asset classes, it's, it's actually minuscule. You think, it's a lot lar- you think it would be a lot larger than it is by reading you know, uh, Google News or whatever, uh, just reading the news. Um, what is your take on that? My first take is, isn't it amazing how the headlines can get you all turned up inside? And then when you actually get to the data, you're like, oh, that's all. Yeah. <laughs> so, there's that. Um, on the ah, debt side of things, let's break it down, right? To your point, the commercial side, that's in a little shakier situation. There's a lot of debt that's going to be coming due over the next few years. And with the way the rates have come up, that is putting that at a 
riskier position. Doesn't mean it's all going to come crashing down on us, but it's one of those that it's not quite as solid and we need to be careful and watchful and watch who you're working with sort of thing. And I don't mean any personal assessments there. It's much more just be aware of what you're doing for business so that you are not putting yourself in a risky situation unless you want the risk. On the consumer side of things, so they're solid. We're watching those debt loads very carefully all the time. They are creeping up, but still well below normal trends. The credit card debt is the only one that's giving me a little bit more pause. Um, the defaults are generally still very low. And you'll see people point all the time to credit card default is on the rise. Correct? Not, excuse me, credit card debt is on the rise, not default. Mm. It's always on the rise. We as Americans love to consume. We buy a lot of stuff. Our debt is always rising. But the defaults aren't rising at a level that's dangerous yet. So we're in good shape on the consumer side of things. Watch the commercial side just for making sure that those loans that are going to be due for a refinance aren't in a sticky situation just because of how high rates have come over the last few years. What's the metric you typically use for as a debt to income? Is it household debt on the consumer side? Oh, I look at so many things just to make sure I'm looking at all angles. Um, you mentioned you've had Brian on before. And so he and mm -hmm. Alan wrote a book years ago about prosperity in the age of decline and also make your move. And part of our methodology is you have to have a whole collection of indicators and you have to have a minimum of three telling you something before you make a move. So in terms of consumer strength, we're looking at retail sales, how much are they actually spending? And as a deflated retail sales, we're looking at those housing rates because that's where a lot of equity is tied up for people and their worth. We're also looking at those debt ratios, like you said, um, how much default is there? how much debt is being taken on. So it's all these pieces coming together to really paint the strength of the consumer. Okay, that makes sense. Now, in terms of the, I know there's been so many different definitions and redefinitions of the term recession. Uh, I'm not gonna get into the politics of it all, but uh, we talked a bit about that with Brian last time. Um, in terms of what we, what economists would would call a traditional recession and whether that's two quarters of, of negative, um, I guess, negative GDP, I don't even know if that's really the, the, uh, the definition these days, but what people consider a recessionary period, uh, is that something that you are watchful of for the end of this year, early uh, next year? I know that there's been a number of talk of soft landings, hard landings, and it just seems like as of right now, at least from our point of view, because we're both in the US and in Canada, that it's it seems like we're past the worst of this from an interest rate um, kind of policy standpoint that we might be kind of on the on a level playing field right now and just maybe even cutting next year. Um, but then there's always that risk of kind of going to a recessionary period. What are your thoughts on that and, and where we're heading right now? All right, I'm going to have to break this down into a few different parts, because if I give you a singular answer, someone's going to say I'm wrong. <laughs> it all Perfect. depends on where you are in the business and what markets you're in. So let's look at housing first, and then we'll make our way through the rest of the economy, okay? Housing is in a tentative recovery. So in 2024, we expect it to be recovering and getting stronger as the year goes on. That's great. That's leading the business cycle. Industrial production, the industrial part of the economy, is going to be heading into that recession later this year and spend pretty much all of 2024 in recession. So if you're industrial-based or you are looking at commercial space tied to industrial businesses, be very mindful of that. Mm. But again, not all segments of the economy are going to be feeling that pain to the same degree. So you know, food production is going to be a much milder decline versus um, 
auto production at the moment is a pretty easy one to point to. Semiconductors will do well, autos will feel some pain. So being aware of what part of industrial economy we're talking about is really going to matter there too. If you're looking at GDP, we do expect about two quarters of decline waffling in through the first three quarters of the year. So three quarters of GDP, two of them will likely be declining at the beginning of the year. It's going to be kind of waffly in there. And then lagging all that will be commercial construction, also declining during 2024 and starting to see that recovery in 2025. So it's all going to go through in this big wave of the cycle because of the way the economy flows through. So that's why I couldn't give you a yes, no answer yeah. and I have to kind of break down the parts. So I want to ask um, uh, about employment, but before, just a clarifying question, what on the industrial piece? So that's that'd be interesting to, uh, you know, investors of industrial real estate that have done extremely well uh, over the last few years uh, in a lot of major markets, record low vacancy rates, um, record pricing. What um, I know that you're using a number of different uh, data points, but it sounds like you're looking industry to industry by industry and, and using that data to figure out whether the um, industrial space as a whole will be uh, positive or negative. Sure. I mean, if I can do a shameless plug here, our ITR trends report breaks down all these segments all the time on a monthly basis. You can always look at that. And all these different segments are updated every month. And that includes all the different construction segments also. So that's part of where I'm pulling this from is mm. knowing where those segments are going to go. For example, we do expect to see warehousing perform better because the e-commerce side of the economy is still doing strong. People really like being able to just get good ship to them. That will fare better than, say, your manufacturing plant construction during 2024. So that's part of the breakdown we're looking at. But even then within manufacturing, like I said, food's going to do better because, well, we seem to keep eating a natural thing. And that food production more processed food than your raw pick an apple and hand deliver it to someone. So that's why it needs that manufacturing piece uh, so that's where a lot of this is coming from, is just looking at our ITR trends report, being able to pull those major markets. Frankly, we do this for our, our individual clients, too, where they just talk to us about what markets they're in, and we can look at all those breakdowns for them specifically. So there's a lot of pieces I'm looking at on a daily basis and not a one-size-fits-all approach to this. So that's why I'm having a hard time giving you a one singular answer. But if you want a small grouping to look at, I always look at a collection of leading indicators. You know, I was going to say, I'm a big fan of econ talk and uh, Russ Roberts, the <laughs> podcast. And I know he loves the phrase, it's complicated. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so it's, I mean, it does make sense, you know, on the um, kind of moving to that employment piece. I think this is where it's uh, for the non-economists or people that aren't in the space. It's, it's a bit of a confusing uh, situation where you see an economy that over the last few years um has you know we've talked about the dangers in the economy the risks in the economy but it seems like employment is almost at full employment and then i know you guys again dig into the data deeper what's really going on there is it people that have left the workforce that are not motivated uh like i know employment in general is not just one statistic you're right there's a lot going on there um it's not just about people leaving the workforce. Frankly, we were having employment issues pre-COVID. This was a pain point we were running into. It's just when COVID hit, I think people kind of forgot that that was an issue we'd been talking about for two years. And I don't mean just me. I mean, that was my clients talking to me all the time about this issue. So it was some people leaving the workforce. But a lot of them have come back since COVID ended. It's really, a, it's going to sound basic econ here, a supply and demand issue is the economy has grown so much. We've brought a lot of jobs back into the US because we've been very focused on onshoring again. So we're creating this demand for employment and we don't have the body count to back it up. 
there's multiple things in there and I, I'm not trying to make any political statements in that, but you know, based on how many people we naturally have going into this number based on births here in the US, but also changing our immigration policies has a factor into that. And so there's a lot of different factors into where we can get that number in there to s- support the supply side of the, the demand we're looking for in the employment side. So that's what it really boils down to, which is why we're stressing for a lot of people, go as much automation as you can, look for as much AI as you can. Doesn't mean you're going to necessarily eradicate all the human employment when people start to get worried about that, it really just changes what we need out of humans so that we can work smarter, not harder sort of approach to things. Is there a workforce participation component to that? Is has Or are you saying that those are also the ones kind of identified as coming back into the fold? There's a lot of them that have come back into the fold. One of the interesting pieces that isn't talked about a lot, and I don't remember the exact data set name, so I apologize, but it's the complexity of what we do is what it boils down to. So you could have previously worked for 12 hours and now because of technology enhancements you've made, you get that same amount of work done in eight hours. So it starts Mm -hmm. to look like we're decreasing our utilization. We're not as working as hard, but really we're still working as hard and we're generally taxing our brains more because there's less downtime in your day now because so much of it's automated and you're focusing on the heavy lifting side of things instead of, the less robust thought process. So it's a more taxing way to do it. So it is kind of changing what our people are doing. Mm-hmm. For some reason that reminds me of, uh, I can't remember what it is in economics where, you know, GDP has increased by, by you know, from 1970 to today because the certain things were invented, um, you know, like listening to 5,000 different artists at one time on your iPhone and you can't capture mm-hmm. that quantitatively. I, I know there's a name for it, but um yeah, there's a, it seems like there's a lot of this stuff that's, I mean, that's just the complexity of, of the economy in general. It's, it's human at the end of the day. So exactly. for the kind of the trajectory that we're on right now from the, just to kind of bookend that employment piece, do you see the disemployment story continuing the challenges or is it, is that like you said, AI and other technologies are coming on and that will actually be kind of a relief valve for some of the, uh, some of the challenges in that area? I feel like I'm going to leave the show very unpopular based on my answers today. So we'll see how this goes. Sure. Uh, generally, it's going to be very tight through the rest of this decade. There's going to be some pockets where it gets a little easier. 2024, with the recession coming, you're going to see a little lightning in the tightness of the labor market. But overall, it's not going to be a huge change in things. Highly skilled labor is hard to find. Highly skilled employees are hard to find, especially if you're looking in specific demographics and geographic regions. So it gets to be a challenge you will continue to face challenges. You will have to invest more in your own training for the skill sets you want and be hiring more for the can-do spirit or the right fit to your business and not necessarily the skill set. Yeah, and that makes sense. So for the outlook, um, on a positive note, where do you see uh, opportunities with your clients? Where do you see, um, you know, on a just generally speaking, the U.S. economy, uh, North American uh, production, whether that's, you know, through the businesses uh, that are in our economy or the general economy in general, <laughs> the general economy as a whole, um, what are the positives? Where are you seeing opportunities? Well, here's one of the things I love about this, right? If you plan for it, there's always an opportunity. Uh, there's a phrase I love, and I use it probably more often than I should, but it applies to the stock market, but I feel like with what we do in econ, it works everywhere, right? So it's, um, <laughs> I just blanked. So it's bears and bulls get slaughtered, 
Oh my goodness. No. Bears and bulls make money. Pigs get slaughtered. Sorry. Mm. It's been a long day and not enough coffee. No problem. <laughs> so the thinking there is, and this is what we work with our clients to do is even when the economy goes down, you can still maintain profitability by knowing it's coming. You tighten up ahead of time. So you don't even have to always be looking for that new market, but if you know it's coming, you don't build that new plant right away. You don't make that large investment. Some of the things we're going to see as growth opportunity. So to getting to your point, is healthcare long run, it's going to be a good growth environment. We have a lot of aging demographics here in the US. That's one you want to set yourself up for. Food production, also another one that's going to be doing well over the next few years. Um, thinking about people need to eat, people are going to continue dying. Think about the ways that people are going to have necessities, even as they feel their budgets tightening. And that's where you're going to be looking. If you have different product offerings, as we're going through the recession, look for things that are going to be the lower price point. That's what's going to sell a little bit better. Now, granted, the upper end of that spectrum, the high dollar amounts, the luxury goods, they're not going to feel the same different pinch, right? So mm. they could still perform very well, too. It's all about knowing who you're trying to sell to and what's going to be what they want. So knowing your consumer is going to be the key in that piece of it. Mm -hmm. Well, you even said earlier, you kind of uh, corrected yourself where you said, uh, you know, not taking the ri that risk unless you want to. And I think that's that's the component, right? You have an investment philosophy, uh, you set that in place, and then, you know, you utilize that in, you know, whatever economy you're in. And just, um, I know uh, you guys on that Austrian side, I... I'm probably going to butcher it, but I know Hayek, uh, you know, the curious task of economics is to demonstrate to men how little they know about what they imagine they can design. And I think that us, you know, reacting or putting a philosophy in place and then going out into the economy, a business philosophy, real estate philosophy, whatever that is, um, is really the only way you can do it because there's going to be ups and there's going to be downs in the economy. And you're really going to have only your tools, your systems, and your investment philosophy to kind of deal with that. Agree. One of the things I like to remind people is with the Great Depression, there's a 25% unemployment rate, right? And that's staggering. And that's an awful thing to have happen to those people. But you got to remember, there were still 75% of the population employed, right? So there were still people consuming, they were still buying, and some still started businesses and made a lot of money. So it's all about finding the right opportunities, to your point, and really finding a way to make it work. Okay, Jackie, where can people uh, reach out, uh, whether it's ITR or any of the um, the information that you and the team put out? We'll put uh, some links in the show notes. Uh, ITREconomics.com is a great place to reach out through there or reach out to our customer care team. We're always happy to help because, well, we like helping the world of business thrive and grow. And we want everyone to find a way to be successful no matter what phase of the business cycle we're in. So always reach out with those questions. We're always happy to help. My guest today has been Jackie Green. Jackie, thanks for being part of Working Capital. Thanks for having me here. Thank you so much for listening to Working Capital, the real estate podcast. I'm your host, Jesse Fergali. If you like the episode, head on to iTunes and leave us a five-star review and share on social media. It really helps us out. If you have any questions, feel free to reach out to me on Instagram, Jesse Fergali, F-R-A-G-A-L-E. Have a good one. Take care.